Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. We're going to read uh, all of... All of uh, Genesis 2, although our, our sermon is going to focus on verses 4 to 17. But I want you to see some, some things as we go through. Don't worry, I, w- I won't keep you standing forever, okay? But um, you all know that chapter divisions are not inspired. They weren't there when the Bible was originally written. You also know that verses are not inspired. So they weren't there when they were originally written. So you see how it says Genesis 2, boom. That wasn't in the original text. That's what some men put there so that when you and I talk about the Bible, I can say to you, Genesis 2, verse 2 says, and you go, oh. And you go down, Genesis 2, 2. That's why that's there. And I bring it up this morning because it seems to me the division between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is, is what an academic would call infelicitous, but, but, but I'll just say stupid, all right? It doesn't make sense because if you go up to Genesis 1, what you find is the progression of God saying what he does on day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5, day 6. Well, then these first three verses are what God does on the seventh day. And so they really make sense to go above rather than below, and you'll see this when we get to verse 4, all right? But let me read first the first three verses. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day. And this is what Jody, Pastor Killingsworth, preached on last week. We'll return to it. Jody will preach on it again. He's going to take two Sundays for that. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day the Lord God made earth and heaven. So if you think of of this text as being a, 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 what do they call it, a seesaw, And it it has something it rests on where more weight on this side or more weight on this side. Verse 4 is the seesaw of this text, all right? Because what do you see when you go to verse 4 is this is the account of the heavens and the earth. It reminds you of a wedding where in the wedding it says, dearly beloved, you know, now answer these questions. Will you have this woman to be your wedded wife to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer? And she says, I will. And then a few minutes later, what happens? Do you take this woman to be your wedded wife? And you're sitting there and you're going, we just did that. That's this this pivot point of verse 4. We just did this. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. We just did this, right? And so what you should be thinking is, God's going to now go back and he's going to rehearse what he just said. He's going to rehearse it. Now, the question is, why is he going to rehearse it? Why? All right, let's keep going. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now, 
No shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. The Bedalium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God, and now we'll stop and you may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so the pivot point is verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made heaven and earth. So we've gotten to the end of of day seven, and now God goes back and he recapitulates. Isn't that a wonderful world? Every time I say it, it makes me feel like I have a doctorate. Recapitulation. Recapitulation. That's six syllables. Recapitulation, all right? So God goes back and he rehearses. He goes over again, reiterates what he said. Now we come to verse 5, and it's an interesting verse because if you look at verse 5, it says this. It says, now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. What is sprouting? Sprouting is fertility. Sprouting is fruitfulness. Sprouting is regeneration. And so apparently up to this point, the earth is not fruitful. Now, why is the earth not yet fruitful? Why do we not yet have shrubs of the field and plants of the field and sprouting? Well, it goes on and says, for, purpose for, the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. And then a subheading explaining about the rain. Yes, there was humidity, because it says in verse 7, or I mean verse uh, 6, but a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. So it's like uh, in the morning where you have the uh, dew, the dew. Not the hair dew, but the dew. And so you, there was humidity, there was water, but, the, but there hadn't been rain yet. But you know that that's subordinate to the other thing that's said, right? The other thing that's said is what? It says, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. Now you're beginning to feel where we're headed in chapter 2. Now you're beginning to feel why it recapitulates, reiterates what it said in chapter 1. 
Because now God's creative action and his word, his speaking, is going to be focused on man. Now why? Well, because the point of scripture is to make you understand your life. Without scripture, you're ignorant. You don't know yourself without the Bible. The point of scripture is to make you understand yourself. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, if you go to the beginning of the next chapter of the Bible, it's the account of what? And there we read what? The next chapter begins with this. Excuse me a second. Well, let me read it from a real Bible. The next chapter begins, chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. So what do you know is coming? What you know is coming is that the next section is going to be the fall. We're not talking autumn here. Pretty Pretty leaves. We're talking when man sins. And you can't begin to understand yourself and your mind and your heart until you know about the fall. You can't begin to... In fact, uh, the great mathematician, uh, French mathematician philosopher Pascal, he says this. He says, without this, we cannot understand ourselves. He's referring to the fall. He talks about how, and we'll come back to this in a few weeks, but he talks about how scandalous the fall is to us because the fall is the doctrine of Scripture that teaches us that because of Adam's sin, you and I die in the early colonial times. They had a little book of poetry that taught them their letters. And the first letter, A, was taught in Adam's fall, we sinned all. And so back then, it used to be that you could use the lessons of the intellect to teach the lessons of God. But we're more sophisticated than that now. And so I doubt that anybody has had a primer that says, in Adam's fall, we sinned all, right? You know, you don't learn your A that way now. You probably learn your A from apple. The apple tastes good. And, you know, the apple tastes good. Well, duh, you know. But in Adam's fall, we sinned all. That's helpful. Right? Okay. So what's going on in this chapter is that God is going over the creation again so that you will understand that he had put everything in place, absolutely everything in place, for you to be eternally content. For you never to be lonely, for you never to be envious, for you never to be afraid about whether you're going to make a sale today. Last night I was reading about a restaurant just opened in New York City and it was some famous Japanese chef who got a, I forget how many stars, maybe 27 Michelin stars, I think it was. And, and now he's opening another restaurant, and it's in the basement of a very famous uh, art gallery owner, art dealer. And uh, so it's like baby restaurant from mama restaurant. 
but it's the same chef. And, and the thing that distinguishes the two is one's in a basement and the other one isn't. But the other thing that distinguishes it is that the tasting menu in the basement of the art gallery is only $250 per person, whereas the one at the Mama restaurant is $500 per person. Now, what kind of food do you think you get there on the tasting menu? I don't have confidence in it because in the article they were talking about how they, they, they very much were focused on, on having dishes that, that didn't have too many calories. And in my experience, the things that make me get heavier are always the things that taste better. You know, that's just my experience. I don't know about you, but I see the word light, I run. You know? Now think of the Garden of Eden. Everything there had gluten. Hate to break it to you. Okay? And you didn't, you didn't go crazy over it. Peanuts. You didn't die. Everything there that was available to be eaten was good. It tasted good. And so you didn't have to rack your brain and cut your finger with a knife in order. You go up to a tree and you pluck the fruit. And the, it's so heavy, it's like the persimmon trees right now. Cut the grass right now and you're getting hit by the branches because the persimmons are so heavy that they're hanging to the ground. That's what it would have been like. It would have been unbelievable wealth and treasure. And every single fruit would have been a slightly different taste. And none of them would have been bad. So you go up at uh, where, where I go to write, up in Sawyer, Michigan, and you walk into the Sawyer Garden Center. And from here to the wall, on just this side of this aisle, are different kinds of apples. And it's after the fall. This is what happens after the fall. We still have such incredible diversity and abundance of taste from God. And this is after the fall when the world has been corrupted. And then you've got the rows of the different potatoes and, and then unbelievable numbers of squash. If you're interested, all of them between 45 cents and 55 cents per pound. I just thought I'd tell you that, you know. <laughs> and just every size, every, every color, the weirdest squash you've ever seen in Europe. And then you move on to the berries and to the tomatoes and then different kinds of corn. How many kinds of corn can you plant today? You know, just human corn, right? And this is the garden. And what it says about the garden is what? It says that the Lord God had put in the garden... I'm looking between my bad eyes and switching from... I should go back to my manuscript, sorry. Every tree, verse 9, out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight, pleasing to the sight and good for food. Now, I've talked a little bit about it being good for food. It was just no taste, no, no nuance of taste. There was nothing lacking in the garden. But then also, trees that were pleasing to the sight. <laughs> now, you don't know maybe about me that my most special thing in, in my life is going to gardens. 
There's nothing I love more than gardens. You know, some men love to kill deer. You know, not the bird. They like to kill deer, okay? And I don't, I, I, I look down on them. I prefer roses. I'm just that kind of guy. (laughs) I'm just always stopping to smell the roses. That's why Mary Lee married me, right? No. Generally, women prefer men that kill deer, actually. But anyhow. So anyhow, everywhere I go, I try to find a garden. This summer, we were in Vancouver, and Mary Lee and I went out to the park on the end of the peninsula. And in the middle of that park is this humongous rose garden. I have all kinds of pictures. I just kept taking pictures of it. Every kind of rose you could imagine. Every color of rose. Different smells, although I think all roses, if they smell, smell like red raspberries. That's my own personal (laughs) hypothesis. Okay, you can test it. And then there there are sort of, there there are like these English roses that, that look like they've sort of gone to seed, like, England has, you know, they're sort of peddled this here, and you know, they're not, but then there are German roses, the hybrid teas, you know, and they stand up straight, perfectly formed, you know, and then the English are kind of like this, you know, (laughs) roses and roses and roses and roses, and it's just beautiful. The lawn is perfectly edged. There are no weeds under the rose bushes. I think somebody has gotten to them, guilt-tripping them about spraying them for uh, black spot and stuff. And so unfortunately, a lot of the leaves do have powdery mildew and black spot. I, 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 did not, I imagine the environmentalists have made them not spray the roses. It's really too bad. But anyhow, other than that, there's nothing wrong with this garden. It's huge. So there are lovers there and children playing and people taking pictures of each other. If you've ever, anybody ever been to London? It's the same in London. You go to London and they have these unbelievable parks. And this is what the Garden of Eden was like. It was like the perfect park. And it had unbelievable beauty, not just food, but beauty. Yesterday, the uh, high school kids were out at the Wegner's um, A-frame, the Weininger Wegner A-frame. And it's back about 300 yards off the road behind a silo. And you go down this path, and all of a sudden, the trees open, and you can see, I don't even know how many miles. And it's not farmland, it's woods, mostly woods and fields. And so... Every kind of tree and color and various stage of unbelievable glory. It's just like, whoop, it opens up in front of you. And that doesn't hold a candle to the Garden of Eden. Garden of Eden, God was the one who planted. God designed the diversity of every taste, of every color, of every petal. Not just um, leaves that were different colors, but also uh, flowers, flowers. And so there was poppies, and no one was doing heroin, okay? And, and, And there were 
There were lilies of the valley. You imagine how they smelled in paradise. And there were roses and dahlias, and there were just unbelievable clematis and and even the evergreens were pretty. Even maybe the cedars, even the cedars were pretty. I don't think they're ever pretty, but you might argue with me. You go to Longwood Gardens. Has anybody been to Longwood Gardens in Philadelphia? My favorite times as a child. Unbelievable. I, I have gone through Longwood Garden, taken a picture of every single orchid in that building. You remember the orchids? I have a picture of every single one. And that's just the orchids. That's not the bonsai. I've taken a picture, actually, of almost every single bonsai. And this is the Garden of Eden. And God makes it for whom? For the animals, right? Because that's what the evolutionists have told you. You're an animal, right? You're a human being, You know, the emphasis on the being and just the subordinate category being human being, right? Right? So was the garden for the human beings? Was that who the garden was for? No. The garden was for man. Do you see how it talks about the rivers also? And it goes through the rivers. And so you know that God sends four rivers into the garden to water his beautiful creation. Unbelievable amount of water. And I'm sure there were waterfalls also. And the rivers have also around them, they have precious stones and precious minerals. Gold! Bedalium! Onyx! It's unbelievable. This is what God made for us. Go back up one, please. Do you remember what is coming? Do you remember the chapter three begins with the account of the fall? You remember that? The reason this is here is so you're introduced to God's provision for you in the Garden of Eden, so that you know that God had not left anything undone. He was not upstairs still wrapping any presents. It was done. Okay? This is the account. Now no shrub was yet in the earth. No plant of the field had yet sprouted. You think of the glory that I just described. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. God waited until we were made to bring this beauty and this diversity of good food, flowers, everything, everything was waiting for us. Okay? And it says in verse 7, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground. All is ready. It's Christmas morning. It's the meal It's the candy, and tell me there's going to be candy in heaven, you stingy mothers. (laughs) Sugar, 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 sugar. All right. The men are laughing, but the wives aren't. Okay. All right. Then the Lord God 
formed man of the dust from the ground. Now here is, here is something very interesting. Do you see something in that verse you've never seen before up until now? We've been reading through the first verses of scripture, the beginning, and there's something in that verse you've never seen before. What is it? Come on. What is it? Huh? Do you see the word in all caps? Well, you don't, Esther, but listen. In that verse, it says, then the Lord God, and for the first time ever, we have L-O-R-D in all caps, okay? It's never been there before. Up until now, it, it has not existed. What is going on there? Well, what's going on there is that all of a sudden, God is signaling to you as you read his word that he is the God that made these things, that it's not Krishna, it's not Buddha, it's not Allah, Allah, it is not Dagon or Moloch, it is not Baal, it is not any God of any history of man but God, God. And the way he signals who he is, is he uses this word, Lord. Now, fasten your safety belt, because I'm going to get complex. I'm going to get complicated. And I imagine if you don't know English as your native language, it's going to get more difficult for you. But be patient, okay? Because you, what we're going to try to do is, in English, we're going to try to explain what's going on in Hebrew. This word Lord is a circumlocution. Now, I can ask our high school students right now, what is a circumlocution? Where's a high school student? Yeah, come on, Clinton. Tell us, what is a circumlocution? Okay, so it's circular speaking. So, circumference, locution, locution, elocution, all right? Circumlocution is when you speak around something because you don't want to put your finger on the point, all right? So, Lord is maybe the quintessential circumlocution. It is a word that is put in the Bible when they do not want to violate the commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. All right? Every time God uses his personal name, Bible translators don't want to take his name in vain, and so they replace his personal name in Hebrew with the word Lord. And Lord really has no connection to the Hebrew that it's translated. None at all. What is the Hebrew here? The Hebrew here is four consonants because Hebrew doesn't have vowels, but you sort of extrapolate the vowels, the points, all right? And the Hebrew here is Y-H-W-H. Now, sometimes in Scripture, this is translated Yahweh. Often it's translated Jehovah, and you can kind of see that in the four consonants, right? If you go to the Jerusalem Bible, which is the Bible that my parents used for family devotions when I was growing up, 
There, they do what I think ought to be done in all Bibles, which is they translate it Yahweh. All right? Y-A-H-W-E-H, Yahweh. Now, that's a transliteration of the Hebrew. It just takes directly from Hebrew into English the sound of the Hebrew, Yahweh. So what we're reading here is, then the Yahweh God, the Yahweh God. In other words, not Allah, not Christ, not Dagon, not Moloch, not any of the, all the gods of the nations are idols. This is what scripture says. The Lord God made the heavens and the earth. This is what Isaiah tells us. This is what Psalms tells us. All the gods of the nations are idols. The Yahweh God made the heavens and the earth. So here when we see then the Lord God, we know this is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. We think of the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Yahweh God is our God, and thou shalt love the Yahweh, our God, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. As a matter of fact, when God reveals this name to Moses, here is what God says to Moses. God, furthermore, Exodus 3.15, said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, quote, The Lord, and here again, the Yahweh, the Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial name to all generations. Listen, God takes his name seriously. He will not have you acting as if Allah is the name of God. Now, why do I say that? Well, because there are missionaries who want to take the offense out of the cross. And so they're in Muslim lands, and they just teach Muslims that you don't have to pray to Yahweh God. You don't have to use God's name. Just use your old name. Use, use the name Dagon. Use the name Moloch. Use the name Allah. Is Allah a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Absolutely not. That God is not God. And it's so ironic because they think by doing this, by forsaking the true name of God, that they'll win more people to Yahweh? I mean, if you can't avoid the scandal of God's personal name, to whom are you converting anybody? And what's really hilarious is, a couple months ago I'm reading the news, and guess what? You'd never guess. Muslim governments are outlawing Christians praying using the name Allah. It's hilarious, isn't it? Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial name to all generations. And so, why do we have upper caps, Lord? Sometimes it's small caps, larger L, smaller, but all caps. Why do we have it all caps? Well, the reason is, it's a circumlocution. It's, it's the way that we can insert something in there that, that sort of indirectly 
hints at what is behind it in such a way as to not violate the commandment that thou shalt not take the name of thy Lord, thy God, in vain. And so Jews, Jewish scribes, when they're they're writing out scripture, copying it, because it used to be copied, they would leave every occurrence of the name of God blank, and then at the end of the day, they would do ablutions. They would wash themselves, cleanse themselves, and go back and write in all the names of God. And so this is the way that we avoid the danger of taking God's name in vain. We use Lord. This God is the God who made the heavens and the earth. It is not any of the idols of the nation. God is exclusive. And you must get used to that because the greatest violation of American law today is that Christians will not bow the knee to the gods of diversity and inclusivity and pluralism. We will not do it. We will not say that it doesn't matter if you sleep with a man or a dog or a woman. We will not bow to pluralism. We won't do it because our God is named Yahweh. And he is exclusive. He will not, he will not tolerate the gods of the nations. And he will not tolerate people who claim to worship him and use the name Allah, use the name Moloch, use the name Dagon, who will not use the name Yahweh. We know our God. He is the only God. The only God. And so when the Apostle Paul goes into the most sophisticated city the world has ever known, if there was ever a time for him to show his tolerance, it was in Athens. And he goes into Athens, and what does he say? He proclaims Yahweh, and he says to the Athenian philosophers, the the uber-sophisticates in all human history, he says to them, he says, This is the God who made you and all things. He appointed the boundaries of every nation, and in him we live and move and have our being. Now that's the gospel. No man cometh unto the Father but by him. There's only one God that has the beloved, only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. And here he is, then the Lord God. Just like Paul said, in him we live and move and have our being. Now, you think you're done with the complicated stuff, but not yet, okay? Then the Lord God formed. Now, what's that word formed? Well, that word formed is the same word that's used in other places in Scripture to refer to the work of a potter who is throwing a pot. All right? So, for instance, if we go to, um, give me a second here. If we go to Jeremiah, we'll read this. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will announce my words to you. And then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, same words, same root. There he was making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay, same root. Okay? 
Now think about this. It says the Lord God formed, making. So when it's a potter, it, it's an artisan, right? It's making something beautiful, right? Or something that has an aesthetic content to it. But more importantly, the potter isn't taking a bunch of clay and throwing it against the wall and seeing what comes. It's completely under his intent and will. And so you have the, 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 uh, the artist's intent of what he's going to make. God is intentional in making man. God is intentional. Okay? And he's a potter. That's the root of it. Now, I hope you're all thinking of Romans 9, because I want to finish it, where in Romans 9 it says, does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? You see, God's the potter. God is intentional. He forms man. He has intent, he has purpose, and he has absolute sovereignty. He has the right to do anything he wants to with his clay, right? Now, you think you're done with a complication, but you're still not. Then the Lord God potted, you know, formed man. Oh, oh, this one's awful. What does man mean? Well, it's the first person. Yeah, I know, but what is the Hebrew behind the word man there that's translated man? Well, let me read it to you a little bit differently, okay? Verse 7, this is literally what the Hebrew says. Then the Lord God formed ha, the definite article, ha, Adam, of dust from the ha, Adama, ha, Adam, from the ha, Adam. Then the Lord God formed Adam of dust from the Adam. Do you see, ground is the Hebrew word Adam. And so God makes Adam from Adam. Do you see this? And you're sitting there and you're going, no, wait a second, I thought Adam was Eve's husband. And I say, yeah, the first man was given the proper name, Adam, because he was Adam from Adam. And so Adam was married to Eve because Adam was Adam was Adam. Now, I ask you, many of you have actually had high school. And so you know how to think. I ask you, why couldn't they have translated it Adam? I mean, we all know, all of us here, all of us know the name Adam, right? So why couldn't they just translate it Adam? Because it's the same word. Well, the reason they won't translate it Adam is because it would be too clear. And it's the job of Bible translators to make things obscure for you. Because otherwise, your thin skin might be offended. You see, what woman wants to be named as her race, Adam? I always have proposed that it be Adam-Eve. Or just Eve. I mean, even Eve would be better than man. 
Because at least you'd be only one person removed from the real name in Hebrew. You know, it's his wife, you know. But of course, that's not what scripture does. Scripture names the man by the name of the ground, the dirt. So really, what it could say is, then the Lord God formed dirt of dust from the dirt and breathed into dirt's nostrils. So you think, okay, well then how do we know whether we're talking about the race of man, then God formed man, or whether we're talking about the specific man, Adam, who's married to Eve? How do we know which is which in Hebrew? The answer is you have no clue. You do it by context. And so when you see the word Adam with a capital A in the Bible, that refers to the man. And when you see Adam with a small a, that refers to the race. It's pretty simple. Be honest. So I asked them when they were starting to hack up the RSV to produce the ESV. And I was talking to bright people. People even with PhDs. And I was saying to them, look, nobody wants to have people called men anymore. They want it to be human beings or persons or, you know. But, but the Bible names the race by the first man. And so why don't you use a transliteration of the Hebrew and have it be lowercase when it's the race, Adam, and uppercase when it's the man, Adam. But they wouldn't do it. Why? I mean, you all understand this, right? It's pretty clear. It's the word Adam. And of course, the problem is that, remember how I tell you, postmodernity hates specificity, it hates distinctions. And the distinction that it hates more than any other distinction is the sexual distinction. It wants to have 50 shades of polymorphous perversity. It, it wants to have men in men's bodies desiring to be in a woman's body still desiring to be a man. And women in man's bodies desiring to be a man desiring to have a woman's body in which she could masquerade as... And genders. You know, pick your, make your decision where on the continuum you want to be, and that's your place, you know? You know, I like roses. And I look down on men that hunt deer. And so that kind of makes me a kind of, you know, what? Well, maybe not quite a metrosexual, but certainly not a band man. Stopping and smelling the roses all the time, taking pictures of orchids. There's something not right with that man. God makes us from dirt. God calls us dirt. The first man, male, is named dirt, and his wife is named Eve. The race is named Adam. You as a woman are Adam. Now, why does that matter? We'll come back to it in a couple weeks. It matters because then you know that when Adam sinned, you died. Not when Eve sinned. And so isn't it helpful to always be named by the man through whom you fell? So that you realize Adam is your federal head. Not Eve. 
And doesn't this help you in contemplating marriage? You're going to have to go under another Adam, and he's probably going to be even worse than Adam. Then the Lord, Yahweh God, formed dirt of dust from the dirt and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Breathed, inspired. God breathed life into us. doesn't say that about any animal. And you say to me, well, we still are animals. And I say, you know something? If you read what Martin Luther has to say about us, he admits we're animals. I was preparing to preach this morning. I was back there by John Crumb. You know, my dear, dear brother John Crumb, and I just had to share with him. I had him read what Luther says at this text this morning. You know what Luther says? Luther is trying to explain the fact that really you and I are animals. That, that in every way we're animals. And I'm not going to get real specific here, but he does get specific. And I'm going to save you from the things that are more embarrassing that he actually writes in his commentary on this text. It's, it's like, whoo, my hair is looking like Ben Crumbs, you know. He's my son-in-law, and I adore him. So anyhow, and that shows I'm metrosexual again. Who would ever say they adore another man? But anyhow. So I'm reading Luther, and he talks about these things that make my hair stand on end. And then he says, there is no difference between a pregnant woman and a pregnant cow. Now that makes me friends with all the women here, right? <laughs> Don't you just, it's not me. I didn't say it. Luther said it. <laughs> now why is Martin Luther saying such an offensive thing? There's, there's probably few things you could say that are more offensive. Why does he do that? The reason is Martin Luther is trying to make it absolutely clear to us. We are animals. We are animals. We reproduce just like the animals. We are pregnant just like the animals. Men are just like goats and alley cats. Okay, do you understand this? This is what we are. And why would you be offended? Every class at the university is beating this into your head. We're just animals. We're human beings. Humanity. We're just animals. We've evolved, you know, a little bit higher, but really we have an obligation to not put ourselves up on some pedestal. We're not to be specious, right? We're animals. In fact, God makes it clear to us because he calls us dirt, which is what the word means in Hebrew, Adam. You're dirt, okay? But, but, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. 
And so this is why scripture says that we're a little lower than the angels. We bear the image and likeness of God. We are the only animal that God has breathed his breath into. We're infinitely different than animals. The minute we, by faith, see God breathed into our lips, he gave us the breath of life and made us living beings. And if you follow that construction that is there behind breathing into us and making us a living being, you will find it used in other places. For instance, in Job 10, verse 9, Remember now that you have made me as clay, okay, dirt, Adam, and would you turn me into dust again? And yet, then we go and we read God speaking this way, also in Job. 32.8, but it is a spirit in Adam. It's translated man, but it's Adam. But it is a spirit in Adam, and the breath of the Almighty gives them understanding. And so the reason that you and I have the ability of understanding spiritual things, the reason that we're able to hear the proclamation of God's word, is because he has, he has given us the breath of the Almighty. And then we read in Proverbs 20, 27, the spirit of man, again Adam, is the lamp of the Lord. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the innermost parts of his being. And so here we see that it's our conscience. It's our knowledge of our sin. It's this spirit that he gives us is is what makes us know to wear clothes. You know, down on Rockport Road, there are people that have been that have been so, so, so incredibly stupefied that they go around naked. It's a nudist colony. What is wrong with them? Don't they know the Spirit of God in their hearts that the fall has happened and so we cover ourselves? Even Adam and Eve knew that. But they think that they can live before the fall. And you go down there and it's like, ah! You go, ah! Don't they know what they look like? But they don't. They, they've stupefied themselves. This is why you wear clothes. Because you have the breath of God. You have a conscience and you know that shame and nakedness go together. You're not to look on the nakedness of your father. You're not to look at the nakedness of women on the internet. It's also why we tell jokes. You know how people that don't like jokes have, a, have an attitude of superiority? You ever notice that? They're so disgusting. They just sit there and judge the people that tell jokes. And do you know something? The reason that they don't like jokes is because they have no idea what they are. They don't know the fall happened. And so when somebody falls, they don't have the sense to laugh. <laughs> you see, clothes 
and humor are the way we mediate the tension between what we are, a falling, disgusting creature, and what God made us to be, which is perfection of the image and glory of God. And so people that tell jokes are trying to shape-shift their way through life, knowing what they were made to be and seeing what they are. And so in heaven, there will be no need for clothing, and there will be no jokes. And this is the reason that Christians are always the greatest humorists. Because Christians don't feel like they're exposing themselves when they tell jokes. Christians think jokes are like on the level of, duh, you know? In other words, Christians don't feel they have to protect their dignity because they know they don't have any. They know our name is dust, dirt. Do you see this? Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And what living being, what did he have? He had an unbelievable garden. Do you know where the word paradise comes from? You remember Jesus said to the thief on the cross, this day you will be with me in paradise. The word paradise is the Greek word from an ancient Persian word for garden. Park. Enclosure. And so Jesus was saying, you're going to be in the garden. You're going to be in heaven. Paradise. And so here's Adam. He's in paradise. He's in the garden. Every tree has every nuance of taste you can imagine. And every, every kind of color of beauty. And every smell you could imagine. And they're all good. And here's Adam, and God has given him his breath. He will never age. She will never stop being able to reproduce. She will not get old and run out. She will have children and 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 children. And he will never stop loving her. And he will never desire other flesh. And they will live together in bliss forever. And only one thing. Keep going. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we'll come to this in a little while. But God only forbade, said no to one thing. And that was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what do you think Adam wanted? He wanted the one thing he couldn't have. And now you begin to understand yourself. You begin to understand yourself. 
What are you but a churning mass of wanting everything other than what God has given you? You are never content. If I were to say what one thing defines us as a church, that's what I would say. We're discontented. We are not content. And one of the most content men in this church is the man that has lease, which is Bob Kapowitz. And do you know why I know that Bob Kapowitz is one of the most content men in this church? Because Bob is constantly making jokes. He doesn't think highly of himself. And I have never known anybody in this church who desires heaven as much as Bob. But you are in danger of being a worldling. And loving the very detritus left from the fall that you should despise because you know that there is paradise. And you know, you're going to say, ah, he's maudlin now. And he's making a show of Bob. I'm not, I'm inspired. Sometimes I cringe when some of the men that work with him are embarrassed at his humor because Bob's humor is pretty bodily. I love his humor because he knows what he's made for. And so he's constantly mediating the tension. And when the men that care for him become as sophisticated in their faith as he is, they will begin to make bodily jokes with Bob. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the paralyzed legs, the limited voices, the blind eyes, the difficult marriages. We thank you, Father, for all the things you've put as witnesses that we were not made for this and that a paradise awaits us. Father, keep us from being worldlings. Open up to us the glory of the Garden of Eden that we might desire once again to be restored to a new heaven and a new earth. We pray in Jesus' name.